Hello and welcome to episode 23 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Furs. And I'm Eloise Ross. And this week we're sharing our picks from Mubi and we're going to let you know what's going on in Melbourne with our film diary. But first we're looking at two films by European auteurs about communication, guilt, death and Paris. Francois Ozon's France and Olivia Assias's Personal Shopper. What are you doing in Paris? I'm waiting. What are you waiting for? My uh, brother died here. My, my twin brother died in Paris. An accident? No. No, heart attack. I actually have the same malformation. Does it scare you? No. I didn't scare him. And you're staying here to mourn. No, I'm waiting. I told you I was waiting. What are you waiting for? So we made this oath. Whoever died first would send the other a sign. A sign? From, from the afterlife? You could call it that. You could call it a million things. But how do you know if it's a sign? French director Olivier Assayez follows 2014's Clouds of Sils Maria, one of my absolute favourite films of recent years, with Personal Shopper, a movie about grief, death and life. This is Assayez's second consecutive collaboration with Kristen Stewart. She stars as Maureen, who, as the film's title implies, works as a personal shopper, trying on clothes and running errands for the barely seen diva Kira. Maureen's true calling, however, is as a medium. Her twin brother dies before the film begins, and Personal Shopper follows Maureen as she juggles her day job with her search for a sign from her brother that he's at peace. Assayez is not afraid of doing interesting things with genre, and Personal Shopper becomes something of a ghost story crossed with a sort of glamorous European art film. As the movie goes on, ectoplasm-spewing ghosts, the surrealist artist Hilma Af Klint, and an extended bout of possibly supernatural texting all make appearances. The end result, for me at least, is the most beguiling ghost film I think that I have seen. Eloise, what did you make of everything? I really enjoyed this movie. I saw it first at MIFF last year in a full comedy theatre, um, and I think most of the audience was was into it, uh, and I watched it again yesterday, and I think I said this to you earlier in the evening, but um, I'd forgotten the ending, and as I was watching it, I mean, it's a very interesting film, and Asias has some really interesting techniques to kind of draw the audience in and to create this this strange tension where really there's there's not all that that much tension narrative wise but you just kind of feel it happening anyway I'd forgotten the ending completely and, and so I was quite shocked again and, and surprised um, and I found it a really amazing film the second time around as well Kristen Stewart is just sublime I think I remember last year when this screened at MIF and a couple of other festivals the internet kind of went crazy because you're right there's a lot of text messaging in this film and she puts a space before her question mark yes she does yeah. and the internet went insane over that I, but then I sometimes do it and I feel really satisfied so maybe there's something in that anyway what did you make of the text messaging uh, set piece. This is a thing that a lot of people comment on. Um, Andy, it it runs for a good 
I don't know, 15, maybe even 20 minutes, maybe pushing it, 15 minutes. Um, mm. And it's this extended sort of commute that she takes. And while she's doing her day job, she's also sort of replying to this slightly menacing anonymous person who's texting him personal ghost or something. Uh, what did you make of that, Andy? I thought it was interesting because I was looking out for that. Unlike you, I didn't catch it at MIF last year, but you're, the main thing I remember you saying when you came out of the cinema was like, oh my God, I need to write an essay about text messaging on screen and how different directors handle it. So I was like looking forward to this. Oh, I remember this <laughs> conversation because yes. there's been a few written yeah. about text messaging. Yeah. And then yeah. there was that shark movie which had a lot of texting on the screen oh, as well. Oh, the, the God Awful Oh, yeah, with Blake Live. Like, yeah. Blake Lively, yeah. Yeah, well, I remember <laughs> being really, prior to Personal Shopper, I was really averse to text, message on, text messaging on screen because no one had done it in a way that was satisfying. It all seemed really cheesy or just, like, hokey. Yeah, or static. Like, yeah. if you're just watching somebody watch the screen. <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah. But this is, like, a supreme example of cinematic tension on screen, I think, because it's just the camera is held on the the phone screen basically it's not like you, you you're distracted like in a lot of other f- movies that use text messaging on screen they'll be showing someone doing something and then the text message will come up you know so as kind of like, that, a, like a mm, yeah like a bubble or like yeah. as a kind of subtitled which text i think sherlock thing. began that yeah sherlock movie. did yeah, a lot totally. yeah. and that was okay but that was you know kind of like fast-paced drama this is much slower and i find that that exercise of tension you know showing it of showing the little like ellipsis that where you know someone's mm-hmm. typing mm-hmm. was just extraordinary and you still had you know you had that shot reverse shot kind of thing of her reading the text messages and so you were really engaged with that process i think that's what made it different in this case yeah and i think for people who haven't seen the movie it is worth dwelling with well, the reason we are dwelling on this is because screens are so vital in this film so there is constantly uh shots of uh, Kristen stewart looking at art through a screen watching a movie on a screen mm. communicating with her boyfriend via skype who's um in yeah. oman working on a uh, doing security for an internet company out there i think mm. um and when she does come across art in real life because she's around these beautiful clothes and these really expensive jewelry she treats it really roughly she kicks boxes of shoes She's like you know grabs clothes. She's, it's really you know, interesting looking at the way that she lavishes this attention on these screens and these these ways these uh, means of communicating and viewing art and contacting people. Um, it's- uh, Olivia Assay is a sort of, I mean, I wrote about this in my review of this film at the time, like he's really, it's this bizarre sort of obsession he has at the moment with, I think, with consumer technology and the internet. And so uh, a good sort of comparison point is Clouds of Sills Maria and there's lots of like iPad work and like Maria Enders, mm-hmm. Juliette Binoche, like Skyping uh, her lawyer through, through an iPad and sort of in that film, it's sort of the stand in for her sort of anxieties about where she is in life and her career. So like she's Googling, she's obsessively Googling the sort of it girl, the young it girl mm. that she's cast opposite in this movie and sort of, she's doing all these sort of perhaps unhealthy things. And it's interesting to compare it with this film where I think it's, I don't know, it's a bit different. She's uh, Kristen Stewart's character, Maureen, the delightfully named Maureen. <laughs> she seems to be more in control of her, use of technology like she what i found really interesting what a lot of people commented on is that she puts her phone on airplane mode when the texting gets all too much Mm. and then she goes about her sort of day doing her sort of boring day job and then she gets home and then she sort of switches it off and like this explosion of text like bursts possibly the best scene in the film yeah 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 Yeah, and it's incredible it's like this asias is is using that device to make us or her 
she, I mean, she's kind of putting off this influx of information because I think at one point she asks this anonymous texter, who are you? And then she decides she doesn't want to know right now. Yeah, and so yeah, she, totally. she puts it into airplane mode. And we as the audience, I mean, that kind of our, our discovery, you know, which is via the viewing process gets delayed. And that's where, you know, this is a really interesting kind of use of this new technology on screen. You're right. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think that's an interesting thing that um, SAS does, the way he withholds information. Sometimes he does it really, really well. Like, in, Or, you know, since we're, we're viewing or experiencing this story through Christian Stewart's Maureen so much, and she often doesn't want to know what she wants to know, things that will reinforce beliefs. But then sometimes he'll just do a fade to black, which I find really clumsy and kind of frustrating. There's a lot of very lot odd of fades, fades yeah. in this And almost midline fades yes. to black, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which I'd forgotten about. Yeah, yeah, same, mm. actually. Mm. And... It's sort of this disorienting kind of thing because mm, mm. it's but just as the emotion of the scene is cresting, or even just before it, he'll fade sort of in the middle of that sensation. You're like, do I keep on feeling this, or do we go into the next mm. scene? Or mm. it's slightly disorienting. But I, I think overall it's disorienting, but in a in a kind of beguiling way. At least that's what I I got from it. I sort of never I felt disoriented, but I never felt sort of uncomfortable. And I, I, for me, yeah. that's what I find really interesting about this film is it's this ghost film. It's this sort of this, it's kind of like a horror film, kind of, but also it's a reassure, it's ultimately a reassuring one. Mm. I don't know, I it's think weird. At the, it's funny. At the end, you ultimately see Asias's sense of humour with, yeah. with, you know, what happens at the end, which, you know, is quite natural. I'm not trying to say that it's, that it's completely at odds with what happens with the rest of the film, but you see that, you know, it does seem quite like a light film, like not, not a horror in, I would say it's not a horror yeah, film. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I, maybe I understand what you're saying. Um, because I noticed in the two, two of the key scenes, there's one quite graphic scene, yeah. And then also the, in the denouement, the very final scene, both, both scenes have the sounds of children playing in the background. Oh, interesting. Which I, yeah, which I was like, that's a really weird mood. Yeah. Because you never see kids at all in throughout yeah. the whole film, but then there's these sounds of ch- children playing in a playground. Mm. And I was yeah. like, that's a really weird choice to make if you, to, in a way to like deflect the, from the heaviness of both of these scenes or the seriousness of the yeah. very final scene. Yeah. Um, I remember like being completely surprised by this film when I first saw it. It just, it had, it had kind of played maybe at a few places and all I knew about it, I was like, Kristen Stewart, yep, I'm there. Kristen Stewart, fashion. This sounds like me. So I went to see it. I had no idea that it had this, like, alternate subplot of... A, well, not subplot. You know, it's kind of the key plot is the ghost story and the subplot is the fact that she's a personal shopper, which is a really interesting mm. kind of um, thing that Asias does to play with the spectator. But so the film opens in, you know, this kind of ghostly haunted house, um, this extended scene, as you were saying, Andy. You know, like, where's the personal shopping in this movie? Um, (laughs) Takes a while to kick in. Yeah, but I found it really interesting the way that we see the presentation of this, you know, this ghostliness or this ghost story because Kristen Stewart is in every scene. So we do, we see everything through her her Mm -hmm. mind. And Mm -hmm. so the idea is, you know, what is real and what is not and what is she possibly speculating in her mind because she's a medium. So she obviously has these things that she thinks or believes. But I think aside, there's a few really interesting moments. Like there's a few actual depictions of ghosts or ectoplasms in a house that you see, but there are also a few other flashes. At the beginning, she's getting an ultrasound on her heart and there's a close-up of the ultrasound screen and I'm like, is that meant to be some kind of possible ghostly part of Kristen Stewart's you know, body mm, or mm. or existence that, that we're seeing on screen here? You know, there are a few moments yeah. where that's really... 
And it is, uh, I mean, that's an interesting point because it's sort of, it's that moment, it's sort of like it's explicitly connected with her dead brother because he, mm. didn't he die from the same sort of... Some heart condition. Yeah. condition yeah. that she has and that we see in the yeah. film. And I think ultimately that's what's really interesting about this film is because it's a, I took it to be about how, how do you navigate this grief and death and stuff with your, with the day-to-day sort of, you know, mm. more mon- the mundanity of existence. I guess. I mean, it's not quite a mundane existence. She's a uh, personal shopper for a very glamorous star. But she hates it. But she hates it. And she says, you know, she spends her days doing stuff that keeps her from doing the stuff that she wants to do. That's what she says quite explicitly. So I, and I think that's something that, you know, everybody deals with, I think, Mm. to various degrees. And that's what I find really interesting about personal shopper. Um, mm, because yeah. it's ultimately about mortality more than the material possessions that she's that are, you know the, at the core of her job. And yeah, you're right. She kind of just she has this interesting relationship with those objects. With yeah, the, she she just rifles through Chanel jewelry like it's nothing. But mm. then she'll there's that extended scene with the um, the harness. The, oh yes, the, the vest, the vest yeah. that she wears and. It's funny. It's, you know, sometimes she fetishizes those objects. Sometimes it doesn't. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Is it about identity? Because she's got the you know the possibility that this congenital heart defect could mean that she's got a very limited lifespan, and she gets told early on to avoid you know stressful situations. Around the same time that she's also told that mediums have often uh, used most recent technology to be able to communicate with the dead. So when they're talking about the, you know using Morse code in the eighteen forties versus now, you know, and that's and then you know within half an hour there's these weird text messages coming up mm. on the screen. But, um, but, yeah, even then it's kind of the, the only th- object she really cares about is her phone, it seems. Interesting. Mm, very, yeah. Um, and that film opens Thursday, I believe. Yeah, it opens week. this Thursday, so recommend Very much it. recommend it. And mm. can't overstate how wonderful Christmas Fjord mm. is. Yeah. And now to Francois Ozon's latest film, France, set in the German town of Kedlenberg in the aftermath of the First World War. Paula Beer plays Anna, who is grieving the death of her fiancé and lives with his parents, Ernst Stonsner's Dr. Hans Moffmeister and Marie Gruber's Magda. When Johann von Bülow's Mr. Krauts proposes marriage, she reluctantly considers it, but soon grows interested in a mysterious French soldier named Adrienne who has been leaving flowers at the grave of her fiancé. Anders, did France win you over? France did win me over. I, yeah, I thought this was a really lovely and gent, really quite nicely, gently told melodrama. And it never quite went where I was expecting it to go, which I really liked about it. I thought I went into it thinking, you know what, this period of time has been covered to what I feel like is its absolute limit on screen. Um, and then along comes this movie, which is, I think it's a remake. Yeah, no less, isn't it? yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, which I would love to watch, actually, um, as a counterpoint to this. <laughs> and, yeah, I just thought Ozon did really interesting things. It's quite, it's a clever film in that the dramatic stakes are quite high at the outset. You've got sort of two bordering nations at war. You've got this young man and this young woman from each country, and they sort of visit each other's country. So I find that, you know, it's a it's a clever sort of premise, I guess, that's already imbued with some drama. Um, and then it's 
it's it's revelations about those characters. What it's saying, I'd say, aren't particularly surprising, but that's not the point. I think it's a it's a very not, it's a quiet sort of slowly unfolding and quite sort of mesmerizing melodrama. I thought it looked beautiful. It was in black and white mostly, and with some key sort of coloured scenes. The first time the colour came into it, I thought, oh, this is a bit gimmicky. But then I, I really it sort of comes with the territory of what kind of a film this is, and if you you sort of accept that everything in the film is working towards melodrama, then it becomes, I think, integral to the success of the film. And it certainly, I grew to um, appreciate it on that sort of stylistic level, for sure. Mm. I think it won, like, Best Cinematography at Berlin last year, or got nominated. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it does look beautiful and very well acted, too. So I just think it's a good film, well made, It would mm. be my uh, summary. What do you think, Eloise? Um, yeah, it's interesting that you say... You you didn't say it expressly, but that you, you know, when the colour originally appeared, I think it's maybe like 25 minutes into the film or something that thereabouts that, that you first have a shot in colour that you thought, oh, this could be a bit gimmicky. I didn't have that feeling, even, even first off. And maybe I never thought of this word before, but you described the film as gentle. And I think that's right. Like, I just kind of thought of it as this really nice, like, oh, okay, maybe... This is, I think actually what I first thought was this is why this film is, has won Best Cinematography um, because um, we, we had found that out prior and because it was quite beautiful the way that it was done, just really yeah. slowly. It wasn't like a, a fast switch or anything, but it kind no, of... No, yeah, yeah. It's sort of key emotional moments. Yeah, it is, it is. And it's these key moments, you know, we have this, this mysterious Frenchman who is basically... I mean, I think in the press notes, there's an interview with Francois Ozon and he says that he's, it was essential for him that this film is told through the perspective of Anna. But it's almost as though the Adrian, the Frenchman, is this unreliable narrator that we have. And so we don't yeah. know what he's doing. And so those colour scenes are, us, you know, the flashback moments. But are they flashbacks or are they, you know, are they just memories or are they, you know, something stories yeah. or are they yep, something yep, else? Yep. Mm. Um, and so that's, that's what I found really interesting about those about yeah, those sure. moments. Yeah. yeah, I find it interesting because at first you think the colour is going to be to differentiate between time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but then he tergiversates away from that towards using the colour more for a thematic um, link. Yeah. So there's the scenes of the music being played and, the, and then it sort of blends in between it. So at first I, I never, I didn't really say, see it as a gimmick. I thought, oh, okay, this is just a standard device, but then yeah. he starts moving you know, into this whole another, another, yeah. another world of using it. Um, the thing I found interesting was Lubitsch's film actually ends halfway through where this film is. There's a twist that we shouldn't mention. But yeah, I was going to mention that. So Not the twist, but the film. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Have you seen Broken Yeah, Bottle? yeah, yeah. So I watched it during the week um, because as I was watching the credits, I saw it said the film was freely inspired by Broken yeah. Lullaby. I saw it. Parts of it are exactly the same, Andy. So have you seen it? Like some of no, the, I've just read about it. Yeah, so the the both of the texts were based on a play, a French play, and then an English language adaptation by a Frenchman, Maurice Rostand. The Ernst Lubitsch film is is basically the first part of of the Ozon film, mm. and some lines and some scenes are exactly the same. Yeah, yep, there's yep. a key line that the father says in the film: "Every Frenchman killed my son." And that's in the Ernst Lubitsch yeah. film as well. Yeah, yeah. The scene with the with the Germans uh, refusing refusing 
for the the father to buy them beers that's yep. in the film. So some of it is exactly mm. the same. I found it I because I, I watched it after France and so I found it much less satisfying because mm. France goes so much further and I think is a much more interesting film in terms of these explorations of guilt and responsibility and yes. the the intensity and like complexity of these after effects of war. Um, oh, than yeah. than Ernst Lubitsch's film, which yeah. was made in 1932, so those you know those things are understandable, I suppose. Yeah. Right. Okay. Amazing. You, sorry. Oh, sorry. I, I was just. Gonna, it's amazing. The emotion that was mined in this film for me came from the fact that these two people who their relationship, as it is coming, as it sort of develops, you know that because. Uh, of the time and place and the context surrounding it. There's a relationship that's never, ever going to end. It's just never going to work out. Like, it's just mm. like they're fighting against insurmountable, you know, insurmountable odds of history and mm. politics and all the rest of it. And that is where I found the really sort of emotional semi-tragedy of the melodrama for me. It's so touching. Yeah. Like, the relationship between these two main characters and then... Um, wonderful the, too. Yeah, really, yeah. really wonderful. And then the the relationships of those around them are really affected by these two as well. Yeah. And I I just thought it was wonderful and so so moving. Beyond what I I I'd seen the trailer and I don't think the trailer really does this film any justice whatsoever because mm. I was sort of not looking forward to this as you know Anders not looking forward to this going in but I was very very moved. Right, interesting, because mm. I certainly thought Paula B was amazing, and mm. I could see why she won the César for Best best Upcoming Actress, I think right. it was called. But then um, Pierre Nani, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, who plays mm-hmm. Adrienne, I th- well, at first I thought he was a woman. Brilliant moustache. Yeah, I thought yeah, he was definitely a woman. Moustache. I thought, oh my God, this is going to twist, mm-hmm. it's going to turn out that he's actually female right, at right. some point. But I then, did sense some homoerotic tension oh, yeah, and I in think, the flashbacks. Mm. Yeah. Well, and yes, and I think very deliberately that mm. was in. It was sort of gesturing towards this mm. yeah. maybe revelation that the film didn't end up pursuing. Yeah. But still, mm, yeah. it says something about. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'd never felt yeah. for a second that he was ever in war. Like he was just—he was so elegant, and he seemed much more as a stronger character when he's in the later scenes in France. He was—I—he was very elegant. I agree. But didn't you say uh, he? To me, he seemed very sort of distant. He wasn't like and in in the way that you would be having just. Hmm. Having you know come back from World War One, um, I don't know. I don't know. He did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, it felt as if he wasn't all there, which I think was very much in keeping with uh, how his character was. Mm. Yeah, I suppose so. He remind, reminded me a bit of a young Adrian Brody, I suppose. Mm. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, I'll see that. Part of the reason why I'm so passionate about this film is that I think it's this incredible kind of. Um, mixture of like uh, kind of tragedy and emotion and you know romance unrequited love perhaps perhaps not and also I just think it's this incredible feat of filmmaking I haven't seen all that much of Francois Ozon's work to be honest but this film because the first part is in this small town in Germany where where um, the Adrian the French soldier character has come to to visit the family of France and the second part Anna goes to France he returns to France and then Anna follows him um, and sort of spends the second half almost the entire second half of the film walking the streets of Paris 
in search of this man and she didn't know where he was. So she was just kind of, the film spends quite a significant amount of time just following her, being almost lost with her. And you sort of think, where is this going? What Mm -hmm. is happening? Mm -hmm. And I was reminded, not only in the plot and in these like character dynamics, but in the music as well, because I found the music, there wasn't all that much of it, but it reminded me so, so much of... Hitchcock's Vertigo Mm. and I was reminded so strongly of that film of the idea of wandering a city looking for someone who you may or may not know who may or may not be presenting you know an honest figure to you and the music as well I thought was very kind of reminiscent of a lot of Bernard Herrmann's scoring Mm. for that film some specific moments even and I can't recall exactly what and I'm really keen to see this film again so I can kind of explore some moments reminded me of Tristan and Isolde which I know Bernard Herrmann kind of used as a bit of inspiration in Vertigo but yeah that's kind of why and I don't know if you think that it's too simple that I'm drawing these um, (laughs) parallels but I just see I just see that there and I think it's really stunning yeah, because I felt yeah. that the music was really trying to push drama into those scenes that were, weren't there enough. Because it, it does take on a totally different tone in the second part mm. once you're going there and it becomes this almost a detective case where she's trying to track him down. And well, exactly. It, yeah, but I didn't... I, yeah, I, it just left me watching it rather than feeling it, I suppose. Okay. But I was reminded of a different Hitchcock film, Rebecca, because there's this looming presence of somebody who's passed before the film's begun mm, over mm. just deci- determining the relationships that are happening. Interesting. Yeah, which I never mind being reminded of because it's an incredible film. What's your Hitchcock film? <laughs> <laughs> Strangers on a Train, because there's a train. No, Good call. Uh, oh, there is yes, a train. It's a stunning, stunning it train It is. It's a beautiful train. And, mm. yeah, I, I, it's a very clever. It's very, I think, it's very well-structured, mm. sort of this mirror image way that the Frenchman experiences certain things in the German village and then mm. the German woman experiences sort of like a sort of through the looking glass uh, similar versions of these experiences in France. Oh, that scene when they sing La Marseille yes, when she's exactly. in the cafes. Um, so, I, that brought me yes, to tears. Yes. That scene. Particularly because at the beginning of, or at, in the first half of the film they sing this German mm. song in mm. a cafe and the French guy sort of experiences it. Yeah, so, I mean, and it did make me think what a wild time it would have been. Like, yeah. imagine going between those countries at that time. It did make me go, oh, this is a new take on what could be seen as very old material. Mm. Yeah. Which is it, what it I It has I really been a long time since someone's had a good hard look at the First World War. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what came out of it. Um, but, yeah, no, yeah, Francois Ozon, I think, is a wonderful film. Consistently good. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and it is a fascinating time in history. Possibly the most exciting time, some might say, France between, Paris between the wars. We live in pretty interesting times now, I will yes. tell you, Andy. It's also it doesn't feel quite the same for no, no. the birth of Cabaret and Art Deco. Anyway, um, so that's France, and I think yes. it's another recommendation from us. Yeah, out this Thursday. Totally. Mm. And now on to the Cultural Capital Film Diary. The Spanish Film Festival is running at Palace Cinemas Kino, Como and Westgarth and the Astor until May the 7th. The Astor also has memorial screenings of Prince's Purple Rain on April 21st and several screenings of the 40th anniversary of Dario Argento's Suspiria, a film that definitely benefits from a big screen experience and a sensitive remastering process. Over at Acme there is a special season of the documentary Ingrid Bergman in her own words, running from April 14th to 25th. And La Trobe University is celebrating their 50th year of existence with the 50 Years of Australian Cinema Festival between now and the 19th. 
From April 20th to 26th, the Young at Heart Film Festival is running at the Palace Cinemas throughout Melbourne. The film festival curated for seniors highlights include Pablo Lorraine's other 2016 film, Neruda, Learn Shafig's Their Finest, and the Australian premieres of Viceroy's House and the documentary Whiteley, as well as some classics such as The Third Man and The Lion in Winter. Finally, Acme are also running a Certain Women, Kelly Reichardt's America season that they're accurately describing as a celebration of one of the most distinctive voices in cinema today. This runs from April 21st to May 2nd, and I think Cultural Capital will give that a collective thumbs up. Yes. Yes. Eloise is giving a thumbs up. Eloise, what's running at Cinematheque over the next couple of weeks? Well, we are beginning a Coen Brothers season, three-week Coen Brothers season, um, this Wednesday, April... Golf. It's Fargo and Raising Arizona, unless I'm mistaken. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's in the so dark. that's a good one. And then following it up with a couple of others. What I'm really excited about is seeing Blood Simple um, on mm. a 35mm print in a couple of weeks. Um, I haven't seen that, so that'll be a good one. Cool. Um, and after that, we've got a few focuses. We're doing a co-presentation with the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival of a few films from um, Restored by the Film Foundation, which will be really, really special. Yeah, really looking forward to that. Okay, thank you very much. And now on to movie. Anders, is anything grabbing your eye from the current slate of movie? There is, yes. So I would like to recommend um, Sarah Winchester Phantom Opera. This is a 20-minute short film from last year that takes as its subject... Uh, Sarah Winchester, a woman who came into a massive fortune after her husband, who was the heir to the Winchester Rifle Company fortune, died. So Sarah Winchester is most known to history for spending, I think, 40 years and God knows how much money working on this amazing mansion in San Jose, which you can now visit, the Winchester Mystery House, I think it's oh, called. Oh, God, that place. Yes. Sorry, even I've heard of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So she spent four decades working on this house oh, following the death of her husband. This woman is the focus of this short on movie. This is a really fascinating sort of film. It sort of collapses all these disparate elements. We have on-screen text telling us sort of the context of, uh, you know, what the Winchester Rifle Company was, how it made its money, its um, relationship with the American Civil War and all this other kind of stuff. There, we, So there's on-screen text telling us that. Then there's rehearsal scenes of this cast of musicians and dancers, and then there's their performance, and it's all sort of in one 20-minute short. Um, so it's doing a lot of things, and it's doing it in 20 minutes, so I recommend it. Haven't you been to the Winchester House? I have, yes. It's, have you? Yes, it's amazing. It's, Amazing. it's huge and you can do like a very yeah. kitsch sort of tour. Here's a photo of it on 99% Invisible's website. Yeah, there you go. We'll, it is. We'll, Look we'll at post it. this picture on um, on our Facebook page. It's like... That's where you went? It's it's the West Coast Mar-a-Lago. There you go. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, yeah. And my friend worked there for a while. Oh, no way. <laughs> well, they... Yeah, you do... <laughs> Sorry, I just... Connections. <laughs> you do a while. There you go. You do... Yeah, you do like this amazingly kitsch uh, tour of the place. I'm like, they tell stories and stuff and it's like this mystery house that was supposed and to be... And they're like ghost kind yes, of Yes, they're sort of... Joke yes, moments? Supposedly haunted. Okay. I, I recommend pairing it with... The Mystery Spot, in, just up the road in Santa Cruz, which is another house where weird mm. things happen. So you can make a day of it. Do That's where it. you like put a ball on one side of a room and it rolls up, up or something? Yes, things roll up. And like <laughs> I stand, I'm a very tall man and I stand next to this short girl and suddenly she's really tall Ugh. and I'm shorter than her. And I'm like, what is going on in this <laughs> electromagnetic fields? I don't know. Anyway, oh, wow. you can okay. buy a bumper sticker for five bucks. That's great. Great. 
So that's uh, that's my movie. Right. <laughs> Tweet us for more trouble. Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so I recommend on movie The Devil Probably by Robert Bresson. So this masterful work by the French filmmaker Bresson, who just was such a genius, I think, in in filmmaking and has given so much to us, takes, I think, his Bressonian austerity to the next level. Jay Hoberman in The Village Voice in 1994 wrote that the film is as flat and stylized as a medieval illumination and a vision bracketed by the void. It opens with Charles, played by Antoine Monnier, who, discontent with the state of modern life, for instance, he tells a psychiatrist, my sickness is that I see clearly. Hmm. Very Brassonian mm-hmm. comment there. Mm-hmm. He commits suicide and from there the movie tracks back over the last few months of his life as a student living in France. Charles is passive but entrancing as a character due to his acting without affect and also thanks to Bresson's style. He's terrific with this particular kind of cinematic tension that is so distinctly unflashy, but here certain moments are really invested with something warm and almost funny. Now, I haven't seen this in about 10 years, I think, but I'm really looking forward to giving it another go now that it's up on movie for another 26 days. Hmm. So hopefully... Given the subject matter and Melbourne's current wintry weather, this will be a perfect time to um, to view it. And that's called? The Devil, probably. Right. Thank you. Cool. Cool. Um, a few episodes ago, I spoke about the early animated shorts of Valerian Borachik, which were very dark and surreal and interesting. And this week, I saw one of his later feature films, which is called Immoral Tales, which is a compilation of four short films, all described as erotic and they are, but there's not that much point to any of them I found. Um, there's a lot of rampant nudity and sex, and the bodies are all very natural and um, unabashed, and locations are almost exclusively outdoors, and the acting is uh, unanimously pretty ropey. But it's interesting to see these films as a sort of time capsule of the, cu- of the culture past. So there's a, it's like a like one of the early archetypal European art house films, I think, that would turn up late, late at night on SBS. And this film was from 1973. Um, and if you are interested in that type of um, European art house cinema, it's worth seeing because one of the short films is called The Beast, which got adapted into a feature film, which is also on movie. Immoral Tales is on movie for another 18 days. And I kind of don't really recommend it unless you're interested in that sort of style because it is weird and it's one that's often alluded to in late in like modern films that are set in 1973 or 1974 for aesthetic purposes to actually go back and see a film from that era and see that it's not really all um, porn star tashes and huge lapels. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that brings us to the end of um, episode 23 of Cultural Capital. Thanks for listening. If you want to rate or review us on iTunes, we'd be very, very grateful. You can follow us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast, and we're collectively on Twitter at The Cult Cap Pod. You can find me on Twitter at Andy Ricky. You can find me at Eloise Lowe Ross. And I'm at Anders Furs. And see you again in a couple of weeks. Thank you very much.